Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Thank you for gathering with us, and I hope you have a Bible. Uh, if you do, would you open up to Ephesians chapter 6 this morning? We'll be reading from chapter 6, verse number 10 through 18 in just a little while, but uh, we've had a great time so far, and it's always good and awesome to worship together, and, and I hope that everybody has found relief today from the songs and the words of hope and truth that they offer us. Uh, because as we will talk about later today, there is an enemy who works to do the opposite, uh, who fills our hearts and our minds with lies and tries to discourage us, to take away our hope. And, you know, I believe that as we get into God's Word today and we open up to God's truth and we really dig into a topic and, and begin a conversation that's going to be so, uh, so important for us to grow as Christians and to stay healthy as Christians, to stay mature as Christians, but uh, it's going to just scratch the surface today as we get into even more in the weeks to come. But, but first, uh, I think we would be good to have a little history lesson to get us started today, uh, because that's why you come to church, for, right? Of course, uh, that's why you come to church. You never know what you're going to get whenever I start talking, right? Uh, but since everybody is so enthused about that proposition, um, I, I want to start off with a question, um, but we're going to do this Jeopardy style, uh, because why not? Uh, uh, rather than putting everybody on the spot, though, everybody is going to get about 15 seconds to write down what they think the answer is. So I've already selected the category for you, and there's only one, one screen, there's only one question left, and this is kind of final jeopardy, so you don't get to pick, you know, 500 for whatever. Um, so the question is, what is the world's first empire? The first empire to rule the world on a large scale. So I want everybody to get your pens ready, uh, pencils, whatever, get a notepad or something in your Bibles or something, not in your Bibles, but you know, adjacent to your Bibles, uh, and everybody's going to write their answer down. You can't cheat. Don't Google it, or don't ask Jeeves, or whatever you do. You're not going to cheat, but I think somebody might know the answer, but if not, it's okay. So cue the music, and let's go. You're not laughing as you get, you're on the clock. All right, pencils down. That gives you PTSD to high school, doesn't it? It doesn't me. Oh, whew. Okay. Did anybody write down the Akkadian Empire? Of course you didn't, right? That's why I didn't let y'all have a chance to say it out loud, because I didn't want anybody to get the wrong answer. So, uh, but you can't say that you didn't learn something valuable. I don't know if it's valuable, but you can't say you didn't learn something at church today because the first, and you can Google me now, you can Google it now, the first, uh, Eric did it earlier to make sure that, you know, that you wouldn't find an answer that was different. Uh, the world's first empire or the first major empire that ruled a large territory of the earth, if you want to be technical, was the Akkadian Empire. So uh, maybe maybe you're glad that I didn't let you participate in that. Now you probably you probably learned back in middle school or high school uh, about this empire, but they didn't use the name Akkadian because uh, nobody would use that name. You probably heard it referred to as Mesopotamia or Samaria, and that those are kind of just uh, territories within this Akkadian Empire. Uh, Mesopotamia is believed to be the earliest or oldest civilized, developed territory or region. Uh, and it's from that region that one tribe became more uh, powerful than the others and created a centralized government called the Akkadian Empire. Now, the Akkadians, 
The Akkadians ruled most of the Middle East as we know it, uh, except not for the Mediterranean coastline, uh, where one of its own people would actually flee the empire with hopes of becoming his own nation one day. That's a lofty dream, but uh, it would probably be unlikely that that would happen, but he tried. Uh, but uh, because the Akkadian Empire was founded by a mighty, mighty man, uh, he had a mighty vision for how his kingdom might rule above all the others. In his vision... And his values were so strong and so bought into that it actually proved strong enough and binding enough to keep his dream going for over 2,000 years. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Over 2,000 years, his empire pretty much ruled the world. Uh, that's pretty mind-boggling. Now, there were some changes along the way, but the bones of the beast that essentially ruled the largest region of the world were the same. And would you believe... The foundation for all of that is actually laid in the book of Genesis, in the oldest book of the Bible, in the first book of the Bible, um, that kind of tells the history of the world and how uh, a very specific nation came to be from it. Um, the foundation is laid in Genesis 10. Now, if you know the book of Genesis, you know Genesis isn't just about the history of the world. It's specifically about how Israel came to be. And there's some loose threads that, trace, that can be traced back to day one when it was just God and Adam and Eve. Uh, but Genesis 10 actually tells us how the world was repopulated after the flood and how uh, a very specific and very important historical figure uh, began to build something that would be pretty big. Genesis 10 verse number 8 tells us that the sons of Ham, who was a son of Noah, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, Cush fathered Nimrod, and Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Now, when we see that word mighty man, you think just strong or big, but, but that's specifically referring to somebody who was a conqueror, who uh, became more than just a local leader or a local hero. He began to be known on a global scale, or what it was at that time, a global scale. And the next verse says, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And, and the, the, language there, uh, the language there implies that he had some tension or he was not following God, but he was kind of opposing God or opposing the people that followed God. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So Nimrod became this kind of idolized figure, this, uh, this kind of admired figure. And some history books refer to Nimrod as Sargon. And if you read history, Sargon is the one credited for founding um, the first um, world empire. Now, later on in Genesis 10, we are introduced to one of Noah's other sons named Shem, who had a grandson named Eber, or Heber, and of course, he had a grandson named Abraham. Now, it's from that lineage that the Hebrew people were born that Abraham led to the nation of Israel. So Abraham is never described as a mighty warrior. He's never described as a mighty hunter. And that's exactly the point. He was a nobody who became the father of a tiny little nation, a tiny little people group. And other than biblical writers, nobody in history really focused on Israel or Abraham. But Nimrod, however, Nimrod is revered and his legacy is all over the history books because of this. The beginning of his kingdom. Now, the first mention of the word kingdom is right here in Genesis 10 verse 10. That Nimrod founded a kingdom, and the pillars of that kingdom were the cities of Babel, and Erech, or Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. And from, the land, uh, from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Now, you recognize some of those names. They're Babel and Assyria, but that third one, 
Akkad is the basis for that Akkadian empire. Again, this is the first mention of the word kingdom. Nimrod or Sargon is credited for building the first empire, the first kingdom that would dominate the world and the civilized world. And initially it went by the kingdom or the name Akkadia, and as we see was one of the cities that he built. But along the way, the Akkadian empire was sort of split into. The northern half would go by Assyria, and the southern half would go by Babylon, which is, we see the origins there in that verse. Uh, and the Akkadian Empire would rule for hundreds and hundreds of years, and then its flame grew dim. And then around 900 BC, from the ashes of the Akkadian Empire rose the Assyrian Empire. And again, it's the same thing. It's just kind of a new version of it. It's just kind of a, a new uh, iteration of it. The Akkadians became known as the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire. And this was during what was called the Iron Age. Or, and literally, that just means they were making tools out of iron, making weapons out of iron. The Assyrians became so powerful because they were the first to develop iron weapons, hence the name. And, and they were the first to establish a permanent standing army. Until this point in history, and, and alongside them in history, um, nations just recruited people to come off the farm and come off the, you know, out, of, out of the mills and workplaces to come and fight whenever there was a battle. The Assyrians were the first to establish a standing army. They didn't just draft men for the occasion. They built an army, and they became skilled with these iron weapons. And the height of this empire came in the 8th century when a new king rose to power, and he called himself Sargon II, or Nimrod II, claiming to possess the power of that original founder, Nimrod, who at this point was considered one of the gods of the land. So Sargon II led the kingdom on a wild conquering spree, and it was really weird. He had a specific target on a little nation far to the west called Israel. And Israel had managed to escape the rule of all the bigger nations, and they were prosperous, and he was very upset about that. So Sargon targeted Israel, and so it goes that after Israel had suffered from its own civil war, like Acadia before it, the northern half being Israel, the southern half being Judah, Israel was very vulnerable. So when Assyria marched to Israel's gates and declared war against them, the nation was too weak to fight, was too weak to really put up a great defense. And sadly, to no one's surprise, this is how that went. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, which was Israel's capital. And for three years, he besieged it, which is meant that means they, they formed a, a kind of a, a barrier around it and choked it out. In the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, cap, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in captivity in Hala. And now this took place around 722 BC. Now here's where if we step outside the Bible for just a minute, we learn something from other history books that is pretty important. Uh, it was against the battle, or it was in this battle against Israel, and it was against Israel and during this conquering spree that Assyria employed a brand new battle tactic that had rarely, if ever, been used before. But it was perfected in this moment and would go on to dominate the battlefields and would help them stay dominant for the years to come. And their secret weapon that nobody saw coming was flaming arrows. And we actually have some footage of one of the Assyrians using those flaming arrows. That's just Kevin Costa from Robin Hood. But um, 
Maybe, maybe he looks like that. So there he is. He just, uh, just burnt somebody up. Okay, Assyria. <laughs> We're done with all the fun stuff now. It gets serious from now on. Maybe too serious, so just you'll be begging for that to come back. Assyria utilized this tactic much to the surprise of its opponents. Nobody expected this. Uh, it had, uh, the people were trained and so swift that they were completely uh, would catch their opponents off guard and they would overwhelm their opponents. Now, with their flaming arrows, no barrier could withstand no animal skin could protect them, could protect a soldier, and there was nowhere to hide once these flaming arrows would explode and would begin to burn down the barricades. The Assyrians would appear on the scene, and instead of having to shoot the target with precision or even get close with a sword, they could simply release a storm of flaming arrows and watch everything burn. And that's exactly what happened to Samaria in 722 B.C. While other tactics were implemented by armies for years to come, it would take centuries to figure out to how to fend off armies with these flaming arrows. Now, iron shield were too heavy and too cumbersome, so the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks simply fought fire with fire for the next few hundred years as they took turns ruling the world. Every unassuming nation was caught off guard. Those without skill of an arrow were just could not put up a fight. And so it goes, as with most things in history, the Romans came on the scene and they changed everything. When the Roman Republic came to power, Rome came up with a way to ensure that they would not fall in battle like many before them did. Even flaming arrows were no match for them. The Romans invented something called the Scutum or the Scutta. In the 4th century BC, the early Roman Republic uh, came up with a new kind of shield that uh, was not just a regular wooden shield, but was a uh, shield made out of wood with iron plates layered across it and on the edge. And it looks something like this. And you've seen these portrayed in the movies, these full body shields, as they would walk down the battlefield, they would pick these shields up and move them forward, and they would form this kind of human barricade, and these shields would, be, would give them refuge, and when the fiery darts came toward the shields, they were immediately quenched, and they did not burn, or they did not harm the soldier. Now, you could almost call these scutums shields of faith. And many called them that. Because they gave the soldiers courage and confidence that they needed to step onto the battlefield and face every enemy that came their way. Because no matter how many furies of arrows, how much they were parried by arrows, the flames would not hurt them. They would always be protected. They would always be prepared to face every enemy, every flaming arrow that came their way. With their shield of faith, they could extinguish every fiery dart. They would always have a way to either escape or evade their enemy's greatest attacks. Now, if you ask me, that's a pretty neat history lesson, isn't it? Which, it's so powerful in its application that I think there's a spiritual lesson that we can take away from that. In fact, I know there's a spiritual lesson to take away from that because the Apostle Paul used this very idea to teach us how we might engage in the spiritual warfare that we face every single day. Just as our journey through history featured the kingdom of man coming up against the kingdom of God, vying to dominate and overtake, in a spiritual sense, the same landscape exists to this day for us. And that's why we're doing a whole study called fiery darts or flaming arrows inspired by the text we're about to read which we'll discover 
that we face an enemy every single day whose goal is to undermine everything that God wills to do in your life. Specifically, he aims to distract you from your God-given purpose, and he's good at that. And he aims to detract you from the work God is wanting to do in you and through you. His goals are always the same, distract and detract. But to be even more specific, the fiery darts that come, of us, come at us have a goal to dis- diminish our joy and deplete our faith. And if those two things can be accomplished, our souls are mortally wounded. In a lot of ways, this is emotional warfare because it gets into our minds and our hearts, not just our flesh, more than our flesh even. His issue with you, with us, isn't personal. Lest we be developed, lest we develop a persecuted complex. His issue is with God. We're affected by association. He comes against us because he is against what God is doing in us and through us. Specifically, the enemy is against the work of redemption that God is wanting to do in you and through you, the work of preservation that God's wanting to do in you and for you, and the work of sanctification and elevation that God wants to do within you. Just as we are not here to live for ourselves, the battles we face are not about ourselves. And this would free us all the time. If, if we begin to see every battle we face is not a personal attack against us, but something that the enemy is trying to do to wedge us away from God and, wedge and, and, and hurt or thwart what God is trying to do, it's about the God we are serving and the kingdom he is building. Because what's going on around us is the enemy's kingdom is falling and God's kingdom is rising. The enemy's kingdom is passing away and God's kingdom is being built up. And God, through us, spreads the values and virtues of his spirit, things that are in contrast to the world. Satan comes against them, and he comes against us. Not with weapons targeting your flesh, but with weapons targeting your spirit and your soul and your faith and your devotion to God. People ask me all the time, Justin, is this trial I'm facing, what is it a sign of or what is it a result of? And I always say what the Bible says. The trials that you're facing are just a result of a fallen world so that your hope would be in God alone. And the enemy uses those battles and the spiritual side of those battles is that the enemy uses them to wage mental and emotional and internal war against you so that you might, so that you might fall back in your faith, so that you might lose your joy, so that you might suffer in your soul. Every day we are on a battlefield, every second of every day there are flaming arrows aimed at us and fired at us. And I know this might be a little bit tense and a little bit, you know, super serious that maybe you weren't really looking for this, but here's the thing our world, we are not at our leisure. Our world is not a neutral, demilitarized zone. We face the enemy every single day. And if you don't want to take my word for it, and why would you, take God's word for it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. The Apostle Paul says this as he signs off to the Ephesians. Finally, my brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And verse 12 is so important. Highlight it underline it, star it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. 
We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against rulers in darkness of this age. And it's just Paul's fancy way of saying things that we can't see, things that are much more serious than what we can see, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly or from the spiritual realm, heavenly places. Now, if that gets you to sit up straighter, it should. If that makes you start asking questions, it should. And Paul's response is, I'm not going to answer a lot of questions about, about the things that you can't see, but I'm going to tell you what you should do in response to those things that you can't see. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. When's that? Right now. In having done all, to stand. There, stand therefore, we've heard that three times already, right? Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, as in the rest of that doesn't even matter if you do this, above all, take the shield of faith which with, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, take on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now notice, Paul calls for us to take extreme measures in order that we may stand against the evil one who rules in this evil day. And every single day, the fiery darts, rapid fire, with a goal of causing us to stumble, triggering our emotions so that we might fall and that his kingdom might rise above God's. Paul says, stand firm in your faith, prepare to do battle and come out victorious. But notice that the most detail that he gives pertains to verse 16 when he mentions this shield of faith. The rest of the armor is obsolete or far less important if we have this element in place. If we have the shield of faith, we are prepared for every flaming arrow that comes against us. We're able to outlast the fury that pummels us. And when the enemy is exhausted and depleted, we are then able to take out the sword, apply God's word, begin making advancements for the kingdom, begin moving forward rather than falling back and playing defense. But that defense is a very important first thing to remember. People may say, well, I don't need defense. I'm just going to push through it. That won't work because we are all weak, fragile, fleshly creatures, and we will, we will, we will get burnt up and burnt out if we are not able to extinguish the fiery darts first. That is, we must be able to examine what's going on and learn how we can evade and escape his attacks. And when I say evade and escape, I don't mean you'll never have to deal with him anymore. I mean you won't take the damage from what he throws at you. So maybe the better way of how to extinguish or how to quench these fiery darts is the word endure. Because when we learn, learn the nature of his attacks and we learn that he can't hurt us, we can rise above it all. We will be able to endure and eventually be able to press on without taking any setbacks. So over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about the common, most relatable struggles that he brings our way, the enemy brings our way, with, our, with the goal of causing us to stumble, hurting our fellowship with God. We'll look at some of the big ones that maybe you 
are thankful, will be thankful we look at. Maybe you will be a little bit, maybe you aren't looking forward to this, but we'll look at things like anger, fear, worry, jealousy, which is maybe the most important one, greed, and lust. But before, before we get to those, I want us to hone in on what I think is the greatest threat to us all. That I think Paul was thinking about mostly when he wrote this text. And the reason why I think this is the greatest threat is because I think we are completely blind to it. And we are most vulnerable because of it. Now we won't play Jeopardy and see if anybody can guess this one. I'll go ahead and tell you. It's doubt. Doubt. I think one of the greatest weaknesses of the church in the year 2022 is that we are filled with doubt. Doubt specifically towards God. We have completely let our guard down when it comes to confidence in God. When it comes to confidence in his plans, and not only our confidence, but when it comes to complying with his plan, our ability to cooperate with his plans and not resist not cross our arms and frown and say, I didn't like, I didn't expect this, or I'm not happy with this, so therefore I'm not going to cooperate in this. Remember when you were a kid? Maybe you don't want to do this, but I'll do it for you. Remember when you were a kid and you didn't get your way? That was not a pretty picture, was it? In fact, nobody pulled out the Kodak, or if you're young enough, no one pulled out the digital camera or the iPhone. Nobody pulled out the, pulled out the Kodak camera when you were pitching a fit, did they? Because nobody wants to remember those moments, but we all had them, didn't we? Screaming and stomping and all the things that we do whenever we're pitching a fit, and maybe you still do this, but I'm just talking about when you were a kid so you won't be that embarrassed. Now, when I was a kid... Apparently, there was one day that I did this. I did this maybe once in my life. Never did it any more than that because, you know, I, I, I was very cooperative. But I don't remember the details. I just have a picture, and for the sake of the occasion, I'll just assume that I wasn't happy with whatever the plans were that day. So here it is. I mean, look at that face. I don't, why, I mean, mom, mom always had a problem getting me to take pictures when I was little, which just hasn't changed since then. I wasn't happy, which I had all the reasons to be happy that day. I mean, just look at the, you know, it was my birthday, I guess. Um, but... I don't, I'm doing this, I'm doing this because I don't want you to think I'm picking on you with the stuff we're about to talk about, because it's very important. But I want you to know that we all respond to life like this sometimes. That God has said, this is your day. This is your day. And you may not like what I'm doing with this day, but we talked about this a few weeks ago. You were made for this day. And I made this day for you. But we respond with an unruly attitude, don't we? And maybe the better word is an unrighteous attitude. So often in life, when things don't go our way, at the core of it, we are doubting God's plan. Because our version or our vision of how things would play out are much different. Now, I don't know why it was so bad about my fourth birthday, because that poo cake was probably pretty good, and 1994 was probably the last good year there was. Um, I got a Super Nintendo for, my, for Christmas that year, and I got to see The Lion King. So I don't know what was so bad about 1994. It was pretty good in the history books. But isn't that true? Isn't it true that often, in retrospect, we wonder, what were you so worried about? Why were you so doubtful of the bigger plan that God had? Now listen closely. There is a, world, there is a lot about this world 
and how things go down that you will never be happy about. And there are some situations that could go one way or the other when they go the way that's against what we would accept or what the values we stand for. It can cause us to get all out of sorts. And what's concerning is, over the past few years, it seems the church has embraced this unruly response as a virtue, not a vice. And sometimes, as we observe what's going on, what is really our absolute doubt of God's plan and control somehow, unfortunately, gets characterized as righteous indignation. Let me explain. Righteous indignation is a spiritual hissy fit. It's, I didn't get my way, and I'm not getting my way, and we're not getting our way, and we're mad about it. And what's worse, what happens when we're having these fits when our way doesn't happen and when we don't get our way and when things go the way we didn't expect them to or didn't want them to or didn't vote for them to? What happens is we begin vilifying and demonizing people and things around us that are not the enemy. And don't miss this. That allows Satan to fire dart after dart after dart and he destroys your fellowship with God and he damages your relationship with God and your testimony for God because you are focused on the wrong battle. Now hasn't this happened in the last five years, maybe the last ten years in our country when it comes to Christians? And if you don't think it's happened, it's because you maybe just ignoring it. Listen, if you think the enemy is a person you work with, if you think the enemy is somebody that holds public office, if you think the enemy is a group of people that are different than you, you are woefully underestimating the enemy. Because Satan would chew them and spit them out. They are just fallen creatures stumbling just like you are. Meanwhile, the real enemy is not concerned about those external quibbles that we get distracted by. His battlefield is your heart. This is why I'm taking this so seriously, because our hearts are vulnerable right now. In a lot of ways, they've already taken a lot of arrows. His goal is to use these external things to beat you down and cause you to doubt God's plan and God's sovereignty. And I'd say he's done a pretty good job at that, don't you? Christians, there are so much doubt in our lives and it shows up in our disposition in the arenas God calls us into. And you know the worst part about this? The enemy is setting your emotions on fire and he's causing you to rage against all the things you're unhappy about. But as you get upset about all the things in the world that aren't the way you want them to go and you're mad at those people and this group and that crowd... You know what you're really unhappy about? You know who you're really unhappy with? Prophet Daniel says this. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand and say, what have you done? We try though, don't we? But we don't direct our emotions toward God. No, no, no. We don't blame God. We blame people. But you know what really is going on? 
We're not unhappy with that person or those places or that institution. We're unhappy with God's version of this life he designed for us because his plans were different than our plans. And rather than resting in his power and his sovereignty, we fell for the devil's bait. We let our shield down. We took the flaming arrow to our heart and it set us on fire in all the wrong ways. And now we live a life of doubt and resistance to God's plan. There's a story in the Bible that's very similar to what I think has went on in our world the last couple of years. It's in 1 Kings chapter 19. You're welcome to look there with me if you'd like to. You don't have to if you want to just listen along. But 1 Kings 19 is a story about Elijah. Elijah is one of the greatest prophets that ever lived uh, in the nation of Israel and really to this day in our world. Elijah was on the mountain uh, called Mount Carmel and he called fire down from heaven. And he told the people, you've chosen the wrong king, you've followed the wrong pathways, but God has given you a chance to change. And he calls the people's attention to God. Fire comes down from heaven, and it proves to them that God is the Lord, not Baal, that Ahab is going the wrong direction. They need a new leadership, and they need new uh, you know, pathways to follow. And Elijah thinks they're all going to follow him, and they're all going to restore the nation that, to the place it was supposed to be, or the, biblically should have been. But Elijah comes off the mountain, rain comes back, the famine's over, everyone expects things to change, or Elijah expects things to change, and Elijah comes off the mountain, and he gets a letter in the mail the next day. And the letter is from Queen Jezebel and King Ahab, and they say to him, we don't care what you did on the mountain, we still have the majority on our side, and you are still public enemy number one, and by this time tomorrow, you will be dead. And in that moment, Elijah completely panics and he completely lets his guard down and he begins to doubt God's plan for his life. The scripture says that Elijah goes to, uh, 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 far, to a desert and finds a tree in the wilderness and in verse 4 of chapter 19, he prays, it is enough, Lord, take my life. He gives up. He completely phones it in. He prays to die. People say, oh, he was just tired of this world. No, he was doubting God's plan and pitching a fit when he did not get his way. And then after that, he gets up, an angel visits him and, and nourishes him and bakes him a cake and he doesn't even realize it. And then he gets up, eats the cake, and then he says, you know what? I'm going to go to Mount Sinai, which is where they believe God to live because that's where Moses met God. I'm going to go all the way to, to halfway to Egypt. I'm going to go to Mount Sinai. I'm going to march up that mountain. I'm going to put a veil on my face like Moses did. I'm going to march up to the top of the mountain and I'm going to demand God give me an answer for this. And he has a speech. And his speech is, I have served God more than anybody. I've done everything right. And God still won't make things happen the way I know they should be going on. So he goes to Mount Sinai. And in verse 14, he gives his speech to God. He says, God, I've been very zealous for you. Or I'm filled with indignation been very zealous for you because the children of Israel, they've forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets and, with a sword. And I alone am left 
and they seek to take my life. God, can you believe this? Can you believe that I'm the only one left and they've forsaken you and they've turned against you and killed your people and I've had to come here and find you because you sure weren't showing up where I was at. (laughs) And God says, he does this twice and then God finally says to him, verse 15, go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Elijah, what are you doing here? Well, I just told you what I was doing here. Elijah, go back to where you were. But I don't want to go there. I want, to be, I want it to be different. No, no. Go back, and let me just give you a glimpse of the future, Elijah. You want to know? You, you doubt my plan? Of course you do. You doubt my plan? Let me show you the future. I want you to anoint Hazel as king over Syria, as in, I'm going to change leadership in Syria. And I want you to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. I'm going to change leadership in Israel. And then he says this. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Maloah, you shall anoint his prophet in your place. And oh, by the way, Elijah, I've got your replacement picked out already. And if you want to doubt my plan more, we can speed the process along. And I can tap him in and tag you out. <laughs> Let me just say this graciously because I love you. I really do. If you find yourself at a place where you feel like Elijah, where you feel like giving up, and you've been taught to twist God's word to justify this attitude of, well, I'm just ready for heaven. You know, it's not going to get any better down here. It's bad. and Can't we just speed this along? If you find yourself so doubtful of God's plan that you begin using spiritual resources to somehow justify your discontentment. You've been taught wrong. And you're playing a dangerous game with your emotions and mental health. And you're on a razor's edge. And I say this out of complete love for you, for everybody. There is a fine line between doubt and depression. And in no time, Christians accept this depressed state and the emotional angst that comes with it, the anger and the triggeredness. The church has encouraged this, and it's left many of us emotional wrecks, and we're burnt out by Satan's flames. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in every New Testament church under the fire of Rome as it was about to pick up. And he says, put on the armor, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm, take up the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the enemy's flames and remain on mission for the kingdom of God because God has a plan and you're a part of it. Even the apostle Paul, when he was in a Philippian, when he was in a Roman prison, when he wrote to the Philippians, when he knew he was about to possibly die for his faith, he prayed that God would spare his life, and he said this, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Paul says, you may think that this isn't a good day, or these aren't good plans, or this isn't a good situation. God calls it a good work. I know that might be hard for some of you to accept because things aren't that good for you right now, where you're going through and what you're going through and what you're dealing with. I think it's so crucial for us to come to terms with this because many of us have let our guard down and we've let doubt in.
haven't we? And rather than putting our confidence in God, we've allowed doubt to dominate our hearts. In many cases, we've rooted our confidence in ourselves and this world, and that's just set us up for more doubt. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Job. Do you know why Job did not gripe or panic when his life fell apart? He lost everything. His family, his home, his career, his friends. He lost everything. But he didn't complain. And he didn't point the finger. Even though that would have been completely rational for him to do. The story goes, after he lost it all, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. And what did he do? He worshipped. You know why his faith was still intact? Because he was prepared for whatever the enemy brought his way. And then he said this amazing prophetic truth. Naked I came in from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord... No, 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 the Lord didn't take this from you, Job. Satan did. The Lord didn't take that, but Job says, I don't see all that. All I see is a God who is good and sovereign, and if God allowed it to be taken from me, then blessed be his name. Because his plans are better than mine. And then he says this, very underplayed verse. Shall we receive the good from God and not the evil? Not the bad? Well, don't you understand? God would never give you bad. God would never give you anything that wasn't good. And Job says, I don't really see it that way. But all I know is that I am in the hand of God. And even if my life be unraveling before me, I know that I am in God's hand. I am in God's plan. And I am not going to doubt what he has allowed to transpire. Job never allowed his doubts to become greater than his confidence. That's why he could stand firm through it all. And we, and as we're on this battlefield every day, as these arrows pummel us, if our shield is not up, we are going to get hit. And as things around us start going in directions that we did not anticipate and we don't approve of, we are going to start doubting God's plan. And while we think the enemy is there or in them, he's really established a stronghold within us. So here's what we must do. With our shield of faith in place, we have to decide ahead of time that we are going to refuse to allow what's out of our control cause us to lose control. And rest in him who has total control. But part of that is acknowledging that God is in total control. That God never sleeps nor slumbers. He does not panic. That God is in control. Christians, we ought to be the most confident, the most unfazed, the most unshaken people, the most peaceful people on the planet. And if we're being honest, we're no more secure than the pagans, aren't we? Isn't it tragic Isn't it a shame that we run to and fro as in a frenzy with zero confidence in God's plan and zero faith in God? It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't. We can extinguish the flaming arrow, this fiery dart of doubt, by standing firm in our faith and affirming confidence in God's plans. As your pastor, 
you know, I, I have my thoughts about what's going on in the world, and I have my opinions about all sorts of things, but my greatest concern is our hearts and how we might be people with confidence in God no matter what era we are living in, no matter what we are going through. Because that's the promise that God has for you. I'll leave you with a verse that we've quoted a thousand times, but we've got to wrestle with whether or not we believe it and are standing firm in it. For I know the thoughts, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for peace and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. There are moments as that plan plays out where we will be tempted to doubt. But we have to make that decision that we are going to put our faith in God's plan. We cannot allow Satan to damage our relationship with God and ruin our testimony for God. We must stand firm in our confidence because God is firm in his control. So I gotta ask you, have you put your faith in God and are you refusing to allow anything to shake or compete for your confidence in his plans? Because the enemy works over time to get you to doubt, doesn't he? Today, we must affirm our faith in God's plan. So I want us to, to, to think about doing this. Can we, can we confess our doubt this morning? Can we all just be honest about the fact that the reason why we're so angry and unsettled and so... It's because we've just doubted God's plans. And we're in the middle of something right now and we haven't seen the end of it. We've lost confidence in the end of it. Can we ask God to give us faith and renew our courage and confidence? And can we ask God to heal our wounded hearts full of doubt and restore our confidence in him? If you'd like to do that, this next song and this invitation is just for you. You can do it privately, you can do it publicly. But I want you to know this. Everybody around you, behind you, in front of you, beside you, everybody in here has fallen down this same path. We are all guilty of doubting God's plans. And we are only wounded because of it. Today can be a day of healing for all of us. God wants to help. And he wants to give you faith. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your truth that is so deeply concerned for our souls God, thank you that you confront us in our weakness and our weariness. And you aren't going to let us get away from this. We've let our guard down. We've let the shield of faith down. And we've doubted your plans. All of us have. And as a result of that doubt, we've become emotional wrecks. We've put our faith in the wrong places. We've put confidence in the wrong places. And we've vilified the wrong people. And we are so miserable as a result of it. And God, what your heart for us is, what your will for us is that we might find faith, that we might find confidence and courage again, that we might be able to stand firm in the evil day and not waver and not grow weary, but be confident that you have a plan. And no matter what time period it is, no matter what country we live in, no matter what era it is, you still have a plan. Why should we doubt? Why should we wonder or question your goodness? We ask for your help and your healing today in Jesus' name. Amen.